Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. This week, our team is very excited to announce that Intelligence Squared has launched a new media partnership with the New York Times. And last night, we had our first event with the New York Times. It was a live recording of The Daily podcast. Hannah was the producer of this event. Hannah, tell us about the event and tell us about this new partnership. Thanks, Farah. The Daily is the New York Times flagship podcast. It's unbelievably popular with nearly 2 million downloads every day. And last night, we staged the podcast live with the host of The Daily, Michael Barbaro, and the team. They talked about how they put The Daily together. And then they also had a discussion about the rise of nationalism around Europe. And this was the first of a number of events that we're going to do with the New York Times. What else are we going to do with them? We're going to be hosting a new live series with the New York Times. It's called Intelligent Times, and we're going to be bringing over to London some of their most prominent journalists and editors, such as Maureen Dowd and Dean Baquet. Well, that sounds very exciting. We'll be launching the Intelligent Times events soon on our website. So just keep an eye on our website at intelligencesquared.com. And now we'll go straight to the live daily recording. We hope you enjoy. joking about how you could dance to the end of the daily theme music and it really isn't any logical way to do it. No, it would be very fun if there was like a flash mob that suddenly (laughs) developed around the theme. Hello, London. Thank you so much. We are here for our first international event and we are thrilled. We are completely thrilled. And what you just heard is a classic week in the life of the daily. It is baffling. It is relentless. And it is disrupted by Donald Trump. Yes, that always. Is the, that's the story of our lives for the past two years. Um, I am Michael Barbaro. I'm the host of The Daily. And I'm Theo Balcom, and I'm the executive producer of the show. Theo is the first employee of The Daily. Yes. When you hear those credits, you've heard her name from day one. She makes tired. this thing you love. <laughs> Thank you, Theo. Yes. And as I said, we're here for the first time. Finally, Michael and I got to get out of the studio. Yeah, leave the cage. Leave the cage. Hit and the road. we really never had any idea when we started the show that there would even be this many people listening to what we made. <laughs> so the fact that you do listen and you're all here is, is extraordinary. Really exciting. Yeah. So we wanted to tonight talk a little bit about why we're here, as making this our first international trip. Yes. And that is because of. The tremendous mess you've made of Europe. (laughs) And uh, we knew we wanted to come and tell the story of the EU in this moment. And we've been wanting, frankly, to tell that story for some time. We finally had the bandwidth to do it. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. We're going to be talking about the state of the EU, populism and nationalism in the European Union. But before we get to that, 
we want to spend a little bit of time talking to you all about the story of the daily. Right. Where we have come from and, and what we are and why we are. Yeah, because I think if you guys found out where we came from, you would be shocked that we're here. <laughs> so we started the show with three producers. Um, I came from National Public Radio, uh, a woman named Lisa Tobin, who's the head of our audio team, and then another producer, Andy Mills, from Radiolab, a show at WNYC, if you are familiar with that. We were the three producers that started the show, and then we had a host who knew nothing about audio. Nothing. Nothing about audio. And I want to talk about that, but first I want to show you what it looked like when the four of us started making The Daily. So we were, we were literally in a storage closet. <laughs> this, yeah, this, this is, is on the, the kind of space floor. the New York Times gave us. Yeah. Now, now they say they're really proud of the daily. Right. It's the, the, it's the flagship audio show. But this, this is, is how got. they treated us at the beginning. <laughs> we, we had a utility closet on the 16th floor of the Times that had previously been used for, for, for rubbish and also had been used for a computer that contained all the leaked documents from WikiLeaks that had no internet connection. So it was like a bunker. So if you can see, there's, a, there's some foam walling around. And, and this is where we spent 24 hours a day creating the show. And Theo wasn't joking when she said yeah. that I knew nothing about audio. Yeah. I had been a print reporter at the Times for a decade. And I had not so much as listened to... Maybe I'd listen to one or two podcasts right. when you all asked me to host the data. Right, inspired a lot of confidence. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so the, the question was sort of like, what do we do with this guy? He has a lot of relationships around the newsroom. Yep. He can help us land interviews. Yep. But I think the big question mark was kind of what I would sound like. Right. So, so Michael would kind of go into an interview in the early days, and he would ask a good question, and then the guest might say something, and it might be kind of funny, or it might be kind of heartwarming, or it might be kind of interesting. And a typical person, if you're having a conversation, would sort of react, right? Michael would just sit there, <laughs> say nothing. So the initial notes were like, you know, if something's funny, Michael, you could go ahead and laugh. That, that would be a good idea. Yeah, that would be a great idea. It turns out if you don't laugh in audio, then the audience doesn't know so that awkward. they're supposed to laugh. Yeah. And so... <laughs> and then you <laughs> right. will laugh. Right, and that's also how we got to, like, people comment all the time if they're um, diehard listeners of the show. Maybe some of you experience this. The hmm. <laughs> the hmm. From, from our fair host. Uh, that all came about because we were like, you need to be in the conversation. Right. You need to be responding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, was, that was sort of a real thing I did as a, as a print reporter, but it suddenly yeah. translated to audio. Yeah. But... What didn't translate was the sudden need at the beginning of the show and at the end of the show to, to actually recite words that were written on a page right. um, at the beginning of the show. And I really, really struggled with that because there was this kind of intangible sense I wasn't doing it right. And we're going to show you what that sounds like. Yeah. All right, ready? We're going to start tracking. If we lose something, we'll start up again. Mm-hmm. Like You've never watched me track. It's painful. Uh, I'm feeling very seen. It's Wednesday, February 1st. It's Wednesday, February 1st. It's it's Wednesday, February 1st. It's Wednesday, February 1st. What's the matter? I'm not hitting Wednesday, right? I know. I just, these directions are not meaning a lot to me. It's Wednesday. It's Wednesday, February 1st. There you go. That's a wrap. All right. All right. Now we got to fucking narrate. It's 8 p.m. on Tuesday night. I have to say, as a, as a producer on the show, that was also cut down a lot. We, edit, we edited that down <laughs> a great deal. 
I, 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 for the record, I just want to say I, I really do think the first Wednesday was fine. Okay, yeah. Um, so um, the other thing you should know about The Daily is that besides a host who had no idea what he was doing at the beginning, um, we had a show without an identity. And it took us, it took us about a month to figure out what we wanted to call yeah. the show. It was really hard to find a name. Names are hard. Names are really hard. Everybody thinks they have a great idea for how to name a podcast, and yeah. it always begins with the. Uh-huh. And so we sat in the room, and we came up with a lot of thes. The story, the briefing, the, the lead. lead. The lead was, unfortunately, a CNN show. Yeah. So we canceled that. So then we, then we settled on, a, on a, the name of the show that we absolutely loved, mm-hmm. and we even came up with iconography for it. And I want to show you that. Um, For whatever reason, we were in love with this bird. The bird. Yeah. So first up was going to be a huge hit. Um, (laughs) And first up was going to wake you up in the morning with a chirping bird in your head. And this yellow bird became so beloved on the daily. And we shared this with people all over the company. And they got excited about it. And then the last minute, the executive producer of New York Times Audio, she just woke up with this epiphany that this was all wrong and that the show needed to be called what we called it internally as a prototype, as a pilot, just the daily, the thing we make every day. Right. And when she made that decision, she said, well, we're, but we're going to take the bird with us. And the marketing people <laughs> said, if the name dies, the bird dies. <laughs> and so the bird died, and we had a huge fight with them. And, yeah. and, uh, and so in, instead, you now know what we have. We have the gradient, the, the, uh, the sunrise, the... Uh, the, the gay pride flag. It's sort of, it's whatever it's you all need. all in there. Whatever you need it to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we went through lots of iterations of what we were going to call it, how Michael was going to say the date. You know, there's so many things that you have to figure out. And it, it really, at that time, the idea that the New York Times was going to make an audio show was just a very bizarre concept, right? right? What is this newspaper doing getting into podcasts? Um, and so we had a lot of thoughts about what that actually might mean. Like, what is the show actually going to sound like at the end of the day? Should it be more formal, right? After all, this is the, all the news that's fit to print. Yeah, this is the august New York Times. Right. So we'd be delivering the news the way, in audio, the way we kind of deliver it in print with all this kind right. of authority. Right. Or did we want it to be more informal? And we kind of got a test of this very early on. Um, if you listen to this next clip we're going to play, which is from the very first episode of the show. Yeah, day one. Hello? Mr. Green, it's Michael Barbaro from the New York Times. How are you? Yes. Go ahead. How can I help you? So David Green, if the name doesn't ring a bell to you because you don't live in the United States, he is the founder of Hobby Lobby, which is the, at the center of a major United States Supreme Court case over contraception and whether or not companies can opt out of the United States Affordable Care Act's mandate around providing contraception, and in particular, uh, the morning-after pill. And he wanted to come talk to us about Donald Trump's choice for the Supreme Court nominee, which was being announced the next day. Because if you remember, there was a sort of crazy night where the president was going to announce one justice that he was going to nominate to the Supreme Court, but he had set it up in a sort of The Bachelor style. So he had two different nominees. Right. 
and he was going to pick one. So he ends up giving the rose to... Neil Gorsuch. Neil Gorsuch. Right. And David Green is a big fan of Neil Gorsuch because Neil Gorsuch endorsed his decision not to provide this contraceptive. So... So we call him up, and the conversation got pretty heated. The liberal press will never say this. They will never say that we offered 16 different contraceptives, and I don't see you doing it. That way you guys won't write, because it doesn't fit your narrative, does it? Well, the beauty of audio is that you're saying it, and our listeners are hearing it. So this moment... <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, it was kind of intuitive. <laughs> it's like, um, but the reality is, you know, th- as a print reporter, you would never run that. You don't run people sticking their middle finger up at you. Right. You know, as you don't say in the story right. that you know David Green, who told us he didn't trust us, right. said, "quote You right. just don't do that." Right. Even in a radio interview, like that would be the, one of the first things to go. You know, you're questioning our authority. You're kind of right. You're being, pro- yeah, you're being face. provocative. Right. And, and instead, we made a decision as a group, and remember, this is day one, so we don't really yet know what the show is, that we were going to keep this in the episode. And it very quickly became a kind of manifesto, yeah. that here was a guest who told us on day one that he didn't trust us to tell his story, and we trusted the listener to hear that, absorb it, and make a decision about whether or not we'd given him a fair shot. And I think because we had just come out of the 2016 election in yeah. the U.S., and because a lot of our kind of confidence in ourselves had been kind of shaken by that election, we were, if we were being honest, in a period of reckoning around what we had done right and what we had done wrong in that election, we felt that moments like this were a kind of corrective to that. That if we let people challenge us and if we were transparent with a listener and we let you see into our process right. and understand how we make decisions then you would trust us more. Right. So this became a real model for us as we went on to let you all into the reporting process to understand what happens when we call sources, to understand what happens when we call reporters and how they get the stories that they get. And so that was day one. Mm -hmm. There were many more days after that. And one of the next moments that really felt important to us was when the New York Times, as it does, had a giant scoop, a breaking story. Mm -hmm. This was around, of course, President Trump and Russia. And what happened was that the president had fired his FBI director. And that part, everyone understood. Our colleague Mike Schmidt had broken the story that before that had happened, the president had invited the FBI director to dinner and requested his loyalty over dinner. And, of course, didn't quite get it. Right. And we had to understand what this story was, right? It was the most important thing going. We needed to talk to Schmidt because he was the person who knew what had happened. He was kind of the only one. So we said, okay, Mike, can we get you on the show? And it um, got a little complicated. Hey. Hey. Sorry. So I got the folks here at Kinko's to let me use the phone. How did you do that? I told them I needed to call the office. <laughs> but the problem is I got my laptop on the other side of Kinko's here. I'm afraid some Russian spy is going to take it, so i got to keep my eyes on it. Michael Schmidt called us from the only landline he could find. So, Mike, what did you find? So Comey gets fired on Tuesday. I go in the office 7 a.m. on Wednesday morning. We're just trying to figure out what the heck happened and mm-hmm. start making some calls early. So Mike could only talk to us from the Kinko's in middle of nowhere. Right. 
I don't know. Chicago. Chicago. He wouldn't let us say it first because he was on oh, some right, super right, secret right. reporting trip. But it was moments like this that, as Theo says, you would immediately cut from your work at National Public Radio. I mean, you, right. also, you wouldn't, you once joked that you would never have aired that interview. No, it's a terrible phone line. Can you imagine hearing that on the BBC, like an actual reputable broadcast? Like, nobody would air that. But so we liked being disreputable and, yeah. and sort of letting you meet a reporter like Mike exactly as he is. Right. He is such a character. Right. This kind of swaggering reporter. You know, like, he doesn't quite have a gun slung to his side, but, like, <laughs> but when you listen to The Daily enough, you kind of imagine like a pen is holstered to his side. <laughs> and, um, and, and this episode was a breakthrough for us because it was such a compelling story and it was told so compellingly from the middle of a Kinko's. Right. And, um, Does anyone know what Kinko's is, by the way? Yeah, it's like a Kinko's, coffee shop. Kinko's is a now defunct brand name of a yeah of a store where you would go in the United States to take to make copies of things at a stage in, in at our a history. Xerox machine. Like, how deep do we need to go here? Like, but that that doesn't exist yeah, anymore. Right. But it did a couple years ago. Yeah. So anyway, so we make this part of the story that we tell, and and we ended the interview like this. Mike. Thank you very much, and please thank... Joshua is going to kill me here. He wants me to go. The folks the at Kinko's. Uh, Joshua, thank him very much. He's in training. Um, <laughs> all right. Bye. Bye, Mike. Thanks, Joshua. I really appreciate it. So today the Daily is not in that tiny room anymore. We, uh, we have a set of studios... We Proper do, studios. We don't do bad phone lines anymore as much. As much. We're on the third floor of the Times building with the rest of the newsroom. We have been integrated and shown the proper regard. Right. And um, we are a team of almost 20 people. Because of the size, we're able to do things like leave New York. Leave New York. Come to London. Come to London and make a very special series of stories, which we are going to tell you about in just a moment. Um, so, here to discuss what is about to be a remarkable and really unusual run of, of coverage that we're going to do are three people who've been intimately involved in thinking about Europe, thinking about you, thinking about this mess you've made and how it's going to get cleaned up. Um, and that is our Berlin bureau chief, Katrin Benhold. I'm going to... Hi. Thank you. Thank Hi. you for coming. I didn't know we were going to do such formal greetings. We have our London correspondent who's been covering Brexit, Alan Berry. And we have daily producer extraordinaire Claire Tennisgetter. Theo is going to briefly leave us, but don't worry, she's going to come back. Um, so thank you all for making time for us. Um, before we start this discussion, we are going to play a clip from this five days of daily episodes that are going to start to air next week. That I th- and I think you'll get a feel for kind of what we're up to. Funny, isn't it? Isn't it funny? You know, when I came here 17 years ago and I said that I wanted to lead a campaign to get Britain to leave the European Union, 
You all laughed at me. Well, I have to say, you're not laughing now, are you? I'll make one prediction this morning. The United Kingdom will not be the last member state to leave the European Union. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This week on The Daily. Us, the European citizens, we are living in a bubble. Before the recent rise of nationalism in the United States, in Europe, a decades-long plan to stitch together countries and cultures into a united Europe was ultimately blamed for two crises. How many people are you on the boat? The UN estimates about 5,700 migrants have arrived in Italy from Tunisia since January. One of mass migration into Europe. It's a big problem. There are too much of them. The other of crippling debt. Are there a lot of Italians that want to leave the euro? Yes. Together, they set off Europe's own wave of nationalism. We've had enough. We don't want to be governed by you. We want to govern ourselves. While the UK has elected to leave the EU altogether, nationalist movements across the rest of Europe want to blow it up from within. It's Monday, June 10th. It's almost Monday, June 10th. Um, I think that sounded that one sounded better, right? That one sounded fine. Um, yeah, our, our secret is, is out a little bit in that we, we, um, we do record episodes ahead of the time, sometimes. Um, we, we like the era where everyone thought we made the show between midnight and 5 a.m., but that actually never existed. But don't tell anybody that. Um, so, Catherine, I want to start with you because... You have just finished this, I think it was nine days straight of reporting with Claire as you guys tried to to kind of uh, impossibly ambitiously figure out the story of what's happening in Europe right now. Um, And in a way, you kind of embody Europe yourself to an unexpected degree, and I want you to to talk a little bit about your background and how you fit into this. Yeah, so I... um... I'm German originally, but I would say I feel European first. And I think in this country, uh, that probably makes me a citizen of nowhere. Or I think Theresa May, what do you call us? Q-jumpers. That's me. So, um, but seriously, I mean, Europe for me has always been kind of the story of my life. It's sort of my own family is kind of a product of Europe. So I was born in Germany I ended up going to Britain to university because I could, because the EU allowed me to go to university anywhere in the EU, and it was actually for free at the time. And, you know, as a bonus, I actually met my future husband at university. He he is a Welshman. And, you know, our two grandparents, uh, our two grandfathers had fought on opposite sides of the war. And his grandfather was actually a prisoner of war in Germany. His grandmother reminded me of this quite a lot. Um, (laughs) How early on? What's that? How early on? How early on? In the relationship. Oh, my God. This was, this was the moment. <laughs> First time I met my husband's grandmother. This was like, she had this thing with partners of her grandchildren. She had like this categorization between specials and floozies. And <laughs> I was still in the floozy stage. So this was important. And we had lunch at her like, she's like this officer's widow in Kent, like very posh. And, you know, I, I met her in this house, the old rectory, and I was super nervous, more nervous than tonight. <laughs> and um, the first question she asked me when we sat down to lunch was like, oh, so you're from Germany. I can't do the accent. So you're from Germany. My husband was a prisoner of war in Celle. Do you know Celle? <laughs> <laughs> 
so that's that story. But you know, <laughs> I you did, did get married, though, yeah. Yeah, it took a few more years. Eventually, I did become a special, but yes. Um, so we now have three children, my husband and I, and they are basically speaking our two languages. They feel equally at home in our two countries. They're basically little Europeans. So for my children, Europe is just a fact of life. And I remember trying to explain Brexit to my seven-year-old daughter a couple of years ago when we were still living in, in London. I was a correspondent here. And I sort of explained to her that there were some Brits who wanted to leave Europe. And she looked at me in utter astonishment and said, where do they want to go? Africa? <laughs> so, yeah. And what did you respond? I, I was sort of lost for words. But I found that it sort of summed up the absurdity of the situation for her in that moment brilliantly. I feel like the one thing that... You, occurs to me as you tell your biography is that you're, you're also German, so you understand, something, you understand something very profound about the roots of the EU in this moment. Yeah. I mean, the EU was basically born in this moment of, you know, uh, after this terrible war and after the Holocaust, you know, in the 40s and 50s, people sort of stuck their heads together and decided this can't happen again. So that's kind of the, you know, the early promise of the EU was peace and prosperity. Mm -hmm. So in a and way... connectedness. The, yeah, this idea that, you know, we got to just sort of suppress nationalism, this nationalism that has been uh, fueling ethnic hatred and fueling war, ultimately. And, you know, this was the idea to do it, to get so sort of collective and intertwined that war became unthinkable. And so, in a way, today, seeing the reemergence of that nationalism... Um, was a reason for me to sort of say, look, we've got to check in with people and see what Europe means to them today. What does it mean today? It used to mean this thing. And in some parts of Europe, particularly where I'm from in Western Germany, this promise was pretty much kept, right? I mean, for Germany, the EU was kind of rehabilitation and gave Germany a, a, a positive identity and a, a, a massive export market on top of that. So <laughs> what's not to like? Um, but, you know, the idea was to sort of go beyond that and sort of go dig deeper into the countries where all this sort of nationalism is, is rising now and just really hear people's stories, mm -hmm. hear what they have to say. And you get paired with two producers, uh, one of whom is not here, Lindsay Garrison, one of whom is very much here, Claire Tennis-Ketter. And so how did you guys start to logistically figure out something as complicated as telling the story of Europe in nine days. Well, I, I knew that I wanted to talk to Katrin and just do a story on the AFD, the far-right party in Germany. So for a couple of years now, I've been calling you every other month and she saying... She stalking me. We're like on the phone. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. I would go on our little computer system and I would find a story she's working on and call her and say, I see you have this, this interview. Do you think you could make that into a daily episode? But nothing worked, nothing worked. And then finally we have a call and you say, well, I'm about to go on this big trip. I'm about to go to five countries. And she's like, can I come? And I'm like, uh, okay. And she's like, can I bring Lindsay as well? And I'm like, okay. And then I said, how long are you planning this five-country trip for? Oh, yeah. And I was like, five days? <laughs> I said, I don't think we'll be... We'll, we'll need a few more for audio. And we settled on about nine. Um, Why yeah. is five days not enough for audio? So... In audio, you really need to get to know characters. You need to just gather so much tape. We're just we're rolling all the time, recording from the minute we wake up. And so they're like, "Meet me at 4 a.m. at Tegel Airport, and we'll start the trip." 
And they're oh, like, and, is, yeah, and they're like, story. and if you see us before you're through the security, don't talk to us. Pretend you haven't seen us, because we have to actually record that first moment. I'm like, what? And she's like, yeah, we're going to start rolling and recording you, basically at 4:30 in the morning. Is that okay? And I'm like, what are you going to ask me? And they're like, oh, you know, why are we going to Strasbourg first? What are you looking to find on this trip? What does nationalism mean? I'm like. Holy shit! So <laughs> I'm like, you know, I, I didn't tell this to them until the very last day. Yeah, the last day. <laughs> I was like, you know what? I I scripted the answers out to those questions. Like at <gasps> 11 p.m. the night before, I was like, what am I going to say at four in the morning to these? So I was like learning this stuff by heart. And but then I realized it's totally hopeless because they they roll like 24/7. And one of the reasons we do is because we want these very natural moments. So these scripted answers actually didn't sound that great. They didn't make they it. They didn't make the tape because she had kind of memorized them. And what we want are just these really human, natural moments. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,025, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. So as you guys start and you're rolling in bathrooms and bedrooms and, and all the rest, um, what was the first stop and how did you envision the trip going? So the idea was kind of to start where Europe started. This is on the French-German border. Mm -hmm. You know, these sort of arch enemies that, that had sort of been fighting for centuries. And it was interesting because it was kind of the one place where we still found um, kind of unfettered idealism for the EU. A lot of people spoke to us about a United States of Europe. And I'm not just talking about professors and sort of educated types, but like, you know, an electrician, a carpenter. I mean, working class people whose families had, had experienced in this region, which had changed between France and Germany like six times, you know, in, since the 17th century. You know, who's, we met, I met this priest who, like, whose um, grandfather had fought for the French in World War I, and then had fought, his father had fought for the Germans in World War II. I mean, these are sort of, this is a crazy region. I mean, they sort of joke about keeping German street signs in the basement, just in case. So, <laughs> um, but, you know, if you think of the EU as something, if, if you think of the foundation of the EU as kind of the memory of war, you know, we're sort of in trouble because that memory is fading right now. Mm. And this was the one place where that memory still felt very alive. And the EU was something very concrete because that border now that, you know, these people used to die over is basically non-existent. Mm -hmm. People live on one side of the border and go to work on the other. So that was our starting point. But 
we then pushed into France, because in France, as you know, there's this Yellow Vest movement, which has been making headlines and has been challenging this young, dynamic president who only a couple of years ago was supposed to be the savior of France and of Europe and is now really hated, uh, we discovered. We, you know, Yellow Vest movement was one stop. And then we pushed into Italy because we felt that while in France this movement was challenging the government, it was still just a leaderless sort of chaotic movement. In Italy, you have a situation where this nationalist hard-right movement, uh, the League of Matteo Salvini, is already in government, mm -hmm. still just as a coalition partner, but it's rising fast, and a lot of people think he will probably be the future prime minister. Moving on from Italy into Poland, which is sort of the represents it's the largest country of the latest group of joiners after the Cold War. Mm -hmm. um, and here you have a nationalist government that has been in power since 2015 and has had a majority and has had the power to really attack democratic institutions. So we wanted to see this arc and basically see what happens as the far right and as nationalists gain power. You keep using this word nationalism, and, and as I prepared for this interview, I kept wondering what the difference is and Ellen, I'm, I'm interested in what you think about this as well. What is the difference between nationalism, which we now talk about with lots of alarm, versus patriotism, which is something we talk about with reverence, you know, an affection and love for your country? And where do you see the line between the two as you're, as you're starting this trip? So I probably started out having a similar feeling, broadly speaking, about nationalism just being something bad. I mean, I'm from Germany, and certainly as I grew up, I mean, I barely saw the German flag because it was kind of a taboo, and when I did see it, I thought that's probably a Nazi. I mean, it was like really like that. And, and that's people, people didn't use it. No. I mean, very, very rarely. Um, and as that, that changed, and has gradually changed. And under Angela Merkel, and, you know, because we hosted that wonderful soccer World Cup in 2006, it really was a moment. And so this sort of idea of civic patriotism um, kind of has emerged, and people are now able to use the flag again. But, so I, that distinction so speaks to me. But what I found on this trip is that actually a lot of the nationalist movements have caught on to this. And if you ask the AFD in Germany today, or if you ask the League in Italy today, if they're nationalists, they're like, no, 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 we're patriots. Nationalism has a negative connotation. We're patriots. So for me, by now, I would say the distinction really ought to be between ethnic nationalism or patriotism mm -hmm. and civic nationalism or patriotism. It's sort of ethnic versus civic because everything else is just terminology and what these people are doing actively, and they will say so, is we occupy language. And mm. so they're claiming patriotism for themselves just as much as anyone. And so I, f I feel like the, the adjective is almost more important. What do you think? Where does the patriotism end and the nationalism begin here? I mean, one thing that has been really interesting looking at Brexit is how much Englishness is wrapped up in the Brexit project. It was not, it's not a British project. And people who describe themselves as English rather than British are far more likely, I think it's 80, 85% more likely to be supporting Brexit. So there is a sense of having lost something, lost identity or lost claim on the country that, that at one point was secure. So I think maybe it's a sense of loss, something having been taken from you. Mm -hmm. And as you travel to these four countries and you're identifying what the nationalist movements look like, what are you finding about them? What is... What is their kind of fundamental animating force, and how persuasive are they? 
so I would say my, my first observation is that almost none of the people we spoke to in these movements actually want to leave the EU. That's just you guys. And I think you may have put them off, <laughs> even the populace. But um, almost no one we spoke to was sort of happy with how the EU worked. I mean, one sort of distinction, if you want to... It's simplistic, but it, it sort of is true to what we saw, is that um, we found that a lot of these people spoke about uh, kind of a fear of a Muslim invasion. This idea of Christian values suddenly has become very, very important, both in Italy and Poland. Uh, and we got a sense that there's almost sort of a battle of ideas unfolding in Europe mm -hmm. right now between two different visions of Europe. And, and what are the two visions? One is sort of liberal democracy, and that's the one that sort of has come under attack right now because it very much is embodied by the EU and the EU institutions. And when uh, we say liberal democracy, what exactly do we mean? So liberal democracy is basically the idea of a pluralistic society. It's not just democracy where a majority sort of makes decisions for everybody, but where minority rights are protected, where you have an independent judiciary, uh, you have a sort of a free and open society. And not so long ago, Western Europe and then Eastern Europe, as it signed up to these, these conditions in order to become a member of, of the EU, these values sort of reigned. But they've really come into question because they haven't been delivering to a lot of people. This is something that we found. I mean... This is us on the roundabout uh, outside of Reims in northern France, northwestern France. This is sort of one of the holdout uh, roundabouts in, uh, in this whole Yellow Vest movement. So we sort of arrived and we tried to arrange these interviews ahead of time with people. And actually, they didn't want to talk to the press. They weren't interested. But we just sort of showed up. Um, mm -hmm. And it was a really interesting moment because, you know, you arrive at this. You, you can see it. It's a stormy day. It's this sort of muddy intersection, a uh, muddy, not grassy knoll on the corner of a, a big intersection, and you've got this, I don't know if you can see them, but these big kind of, yeah, multinationals sort of all around. You've got an Ikea, you've got a Burger King on the other side, and here's this sort of blazing bonfire, and a, a few kind of plastic chairs sat around it with people in their bright yellow reflective vests, uh, just sort of... Um, sitting there and basically trying to bring down this president, which is the basic thing that united them, but also saying democracy is not working for us. A lot of the people we spoke to had never voted, had never bothered, or some of them had voted for Macron, but felt completely betrayed even a couple of years in. Um, so I don't know if you agree, Claire, but my sense was that we heard a lot, a lot around this trip, we sort of felt that Europe had become almost like synonymous with these big abstract things, things like liberal democracy uh, or austerity or wage stagnation or migration in the case of Italy. Mm -hmm. So I felt a lot of resentment. You I described the... Oh, go ahead. No, no just, just because what I thought was really interesting on that roundabout, you can't see it, but behind these chairs is this small wooden shed. And it's a shed that a, a retired carpenter, Guy, whom we interviewed at length on that roundabout, and who's been there pretty much every day since November 17th, at least for a few hours every day, has been built and rebuilt a couple of times because it had been taken down by police in between. And this shed, to me, was fascinating because it was this like small seven-square-meter shelter that, in a way, was a microcosm of the French way of life that they were trying to hold on to. There was a small bar in there with coffee, sack of potatoes, petanque balls. There was a sofa, and mm. there was so much camaraderie. In, in about five minutes after this photo was taken, this is mother of all right. downpours. It was like 
raining and storming. There was lightning, and everybody sort of crowded into this tiny shelter. Screen, they, everyone ran in together, and they were actually they had gone out in the roundabout to to give flyers to these cars to get to get support, garner support for the yellow vest movement, which is which is dying, and they're trying to get more. But why is the out. EU a threat to this kind of museum of French life? Is I guess what I'm struggling to understand. We asked them this question, and they basically said that Europe. Is synonymous with wage competition. The minute the Eastern European countries joined, they felt that their salary increases leveled off. They felt that they had to work harder, longer hours, more overtime, and not get paid for it because there were subcontractors now, companies from Bulgaria or Poland, mm -hmm. that would offer the work more cheaply to the big companies that that their their own companies was was trying to get contracts for. They really sort of said that that period between 2004 and 2010, and then of course the financial crisis made it all worse. Um, they felt a sort of leveling off in their living standards, and a lot of them are really struggling. And and we we saw their paychecks, and we saw the sort of what is left at the end of the months, and it's basically nothing. And the sort of humiliation of having you know being an electrician in France, second generation. Your father was an electrician before you, but in those days was able to buy a house when he was 30 and bring up a family in a kind of semi-middle class way. Here you are now in this generation. You can barely pay your rent. You have to ask your father for a loan when your boiler breaks. You have to tell your children in the middle of the months that there's not going to be enough money until the end of the month. You can never take your children to the cinema or to Paris. So to me, that was really, really uh, insightful and also humbling, because let's face it, we are all part of a very privileged elite, and things like liberal democracy and Europe have worked very nicely for us. But you realize when you travel the lands in Europe today. That there are a lot of people who feel that liberal democracy is not working for them. What you're describing sounds very generational. I have an image in my head of older French, Polish, German complaining of an era that's gone, of an identity that's been robbed, of a life that no longer exists. Am I wrong in assuming that? So I went into the story sort of with the same assumption. And it's a, it's not a bad assumption. I mean, if you look at Britain, if I'm not mistaken, um, you know, uh, the younger people are more likely to be against Brexit, and it's the older people um, who've been in favour of it. But I was quite shocked to find that along the way, we met a lot of young people who have either inherited or just simply embodied and embraced. Um, Very xenophobic views, actually. I mean, the, the, one of the one of the moments that really stuck with me is meeting this uh, this father, uh, uh, an, an, an engineer in Italy, in Tuscany, on this market square in Arezzo. Somebody who votes on the centre right. He happened to be there when we were there with this sort of league league politician. But we started talking to him, and and I sort of asked him a variation of your question, and he said, you know, the young people, they really hate the migrants. And I was like, whoa, what do you mean? And he said, he was watching the television news uh, with his 16-year-old daughter just a few days earlier. And he said, they were watching this report about a migrant ship that had capsized, you know, and a hundred migrants had died. Mm -hmm. And his daughter just gave the thumbs up. And he said he was shocked by this. Mm -hmm. And he, she saw his shock and the sort of horror in his face and said, dad, don't look so shocked. Everybody thinks this. And you know they sat down for a long conversation, and sort of you know him and his wife kind of tried to talk to to their daughter 
uh, about human rights, about the difficulties some of these people have gone through and mm. so on. And he said he believes that that conversation probably has, hasn't made a, a difference. Ellen, I want to talk about what happens when the nationalists get to power and they have what seems like a concrete demand from the people to do something like leave the EU, hmm. which is what's happened here, and it doesn't happen. It hasn't happened. So what does that tell us about these movements when, in, in a way, they kind of get what they say they want? Right. Well, Britain obviously doesn't have a nationalist party, never and never has, notably. And in some ways, this was an experiment in a sort of stable, well-organized system taking on a populist project and tr trying to carry it out in a responsible way. And of course, um, what we have seen now is it's broken the system. Hmm. Um, I moved here a couple of years ago, and uh, I thought I had a good... Uh, reliable theoretical framework for uh, Britain based on my extremely close reading of the works of Agatha Christie. Um, <laughs> and what I understood from that is that this was a small island where people knew how to not take up too much space and live in relative comedy, which is punctuated by the occasional homicide, uh, <laughs> which is <laughs> then resolved in an orderly fashion. Um, and Compared to America, where we like to break the China, this is a country that has tended to resolve its existential differences in, um, in a more friendly way. So we had a scorched-earth, winner-take-all civil war that we've never gotten over. But the British conflicts have usually been solved, um, not a monarchy, not a republic, but some fudge in between the two. Mm -hmm. It's not Catholic, it's not Protestant, but again, like something was found. And so this was my, this was my thesis, and I loved my thesis. <laughs> I loved it so much, I put it in the paper. And my, um, my colleague, Stephen Castle, who is better informed on all of these matters than myself, he was like, are you sure you want to put that in the paper? <laughs> anyway, I put it in the paper, and the thesis was called, What Could Be More British Than a Compromise Everyone Hates? Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I think we all know how that turned out. But, but did the Brexit vote, in the end, diffuse the nationalism in a way that maybe doesn't require the last step? Is that a possibility? Is no, that I mean, at? I would say that it's been the opposite. When I go out and talk to people about this, they are no longer interested in whether Brexit is a good idea. They want to know why their vote is being ignored. Hmm. So that is the issue that has completely replaced the question of whether Brexit is good for the country. And I think it's going to take years to get it out of the system. This is, this is very reminiscent, actually, of what we heard. That, and this is interesting, because I was France correspondent for, for like 10 years um, and, and was there when, when there was this referendum in France on this European Constitutional Treaty in 2005. And if you recall, the, the French voted no to that. And uh, then a couple of years later, some fudge was arranged, and pretty much the heart and soul of that treaty was kind of um, put into this other treaty that now wasn't put to a referendum and just passed uh, anyways, the Lisbon Treaty. Um, and, and I sort of didn't pay much attention to it. This is like ancient history as far I'm concerned. When we were there, the people on that roundabout were talking about that. They were talking about hmm. how their vote had been ignored. Hmm. And when we were in Italy, people were like, 
Remember Monty mm. during the financial crisis and then the debt crisis where basically the European Union put pressure on Berlusconi to resign, the elected prime minister, mm -hmm. whatever you think of him, and put in place basically a technocratic government for two years under Monty, uh, totally undemocratic, and, and basically raise taxes, lower spending, appease financial markets. So, you know, again, in Italy it was like democracy. What democracy? So I felt like, I, it reminded me of Brexit, and, and much as, as you heard from my introduction, I mean, as much as I took Brexit personal in some ways when I was living here, and much as I sort of inside of me thought maybe a second referendum would be a good idea and maybe it will never happen. Actually, by now I feel like it's hard to get away with not doing it mm -hmm. after that vote. You know, like... I mean, I, I also think people want... They're beginning to want a different kind of... A different flavor of democracy. So, I mean, mean, in the system right now, you have a whole bunch of well-meaning officials who believe that they were elected to use their judgment as they see fit to protect the interests of the people. Um, and then you have a whole... A different part of the government that believes that when the people make their wishes clear... Even if you think it's a bad idea, you do it. You have to do it, even if it breaks the China. Um, and these are two groups of, I think, well-meaning people who are putting such strain on the system that it um, it may change permanently. So, what's the flavor of government we might get as a result of that? I mean, I think what you get is alienation. I mean, people who no longer... I mean, we've been going out and talking to people who are watching this play out, and the sense of kind of disappointment um, in British democracy, and they, they use those words, um, if people don't believe that democracy works, they're going to accept something less. Or maybe they even want something more authoritarian. And by less, do we mean authoritarian? I think so. Well, this brings us to kind of the impossible question of the night, I think, which is if the EU is founded on the principle of liberal democracy as a fundamental good, and people are questioning whether that functions, what is the state of that institution in Europe, and therefore the idea of the European Union itself? Admittedly. How long do I have it? <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think... It's interesting. We all saw the, the, the European elections play out, and uh, there, there's, there's two interpretations of that result, right? I mean, there is one benign interpretation which says, which says that the wave of populists and nationalists getting into the European Parliament wasn't as bad as a lot of people had predicted and expected. And you could, uh, you know, take uh, sort of hope from the fact that in several countries, including Germany, the Greens, sort of pro-liberal and pro-refugee kind of uh, parties gained. Um, but the other interpretation is that if you take the long view, uh, having nationalists and populists sort of steadily gain ground and just get entrenched in the system and sort of rising from 20 to 24% or whatever, maybe not to 30, but steadily gaining ground, that that is a movement that is happening and that that is a movement that is worrying. And um, if you had told me, for example, now people said in Germany the AFD only got 11%, but if you had told me 10 years ago that there would be A, a far-right party mm. in parliament and the biggest opposition party in the country, that would get 11% in the European elections, I would have been utterly speechless. So if you take the long view, something big is happening. What exactly? 
I don't think we'll know until like 10, 15 years from now mm -hmm. when we look back. I think Europe has sort of turned into a battleground. There is this battle of ideas. And I don't think it's decided. I don't, I, but I think, you know, I think liberals have to put up a fight. I don't really see them putting up a fight right now, but they also have to be incredibly humble because we are hearing from people that it's not functioning, it's not working. And there's almost, and we've heard this in Poland from the nationalists who are sort of saying, democracy is doing great in Poland, thank you very much. It's doing great in Hungary. We're doing what the people want. Mm -hmm. They're doing what the people elected us for. We have majority. You guys are just dreaming of majorities. I think democracy in Germany is not looking so healthy. Hmm. So it, it's, I think it's important for the liberal democracy side to really listen deeply and... Accept the skepticism. Uh, well, and, and analyze sort of where they may have gone wrong. I mean, this, this idea of illiberal liberalism comes to mind. This idea that maybe liberals haven't been tolerant enough of views that aren't their own. And then, of course... The bigger, and maybe the, the question that we found in every single country, is this, this issue of social injustice and just this question that the system isn't delivering. So we've talked about democracy, but there's a broader question about, you know, our pairing of capitalism with liberal democracy and the sort of social divide right now. There's no language for the future. There, nobody's selling a positive vision for the future to voters no right now. Well, well, that's not quite true. I mean, you know, you've got the Greens and you've got these sort of... Uh, few examples. You've, and then you've got these unorthodox examples, people like Greta Thunberg, who probably have, done, have, done, have more leadership in them than a lot of the sort of leading you know, party leaders. And there are people like Macron, where, like I said earlier, a lot of people thought he's the guy. He, he will save Europe, and he will save liberal democracy. But he hasn't come up with the sort of um, innovation and the new ideas that really tackle these deep issues, I don't think. I asked you before we did this interview where you see the, the greatest leadership right now, and I want you to tell everybody in the audience what you said. And I said, where in non-nationalist governance are you seeing great leadership? Where in non-nationalist... Yeah, and I was referring to Europe, but do you remember what you said? I don't. It's so long you said ago. China. You said China. Oh. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's true. I mean, so this, the, it's, it's true. That was a brilliant comment that I made earlier and I've already forgotten. <laughs> uh, um, but it's true. I mean, we're in this world where you've got these nationalist leaders who are, who are great at being leaders, by the way, right? They have the language. Um, it's not a language of the future. It's more a language of the past. But it's, it, that's what, what people want to hear. They want that past. They want to preserve things. So that's sort of, you know, Trump's language. It's, it's the language of Salvini. It's the language of the people in Poland, uh, of, of the Law and Justice Party. China is not a democracy, but it has a, a project for the future. It has a language for the future. It know, knows where it's going, and it's doing pretty well. And so the question is, what do those defending liberal democracy in Europe, where, what language of the future are there going to find. I mean, this is what I'm not seeing right, right now. Yeah. I mean, at the end of daily episodes, I always sum things up. So what you're saying is, so what you're... I love this. You know the journalist motto, first simplify, then exaggerate. Yes. Yeah. Oh, you're, you're totally teaming me up. Yeah. So what you're saying is, <laughs> things in Europe are so messy that the model is a communist government in China. <laughs> first summarize, then exaggerate. So... I love it, yes. Um, so I will just tell you that even Chancellor Merkel of Germany 
has admitted that when you challenge the Chinese government uh, on human rights and they shoot back, well, we are lifting millions of people out of poverty in a pretty effective, on a pretty effective schedule. We are working for human rights. Even she said, it's very hard to not agree with that. So, again, I don't think the model is communism. Uh, by the way, I don't think, I mean, it's basically authoritarian capitalism, right? That's what China's model is. I don't think that's the model anyone should strive for, but I think it's really interesting to observe that the effectiveness of government there, what, you know, the, 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 the delivery um, is, is, is something that certainly in our very messy and paralyzed democracies right now, I mean, it's, it's a threat to our vision of the future, sure. And we need to sort this out. Thank you all for this conversation. I really want to thank you all for coming out. I want to thank you for supporting and listening to The Daily and supporting and hopefully subscribing to The New York Times and for giving us your time, your empathy, and your intelligence. Uh, we are so, so grateful. So thank you all very much. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't be proper if I didn't sign off. I'm Michael Barbaro. I will see you on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all. We're going to stay out here.